basic, we're talking about love. And the Greek word for love, that's used most for love in the scripture is agape. At least that's the root word of it, agape. But the Greeks had other words for love, where we have kind of maybe one word for love. The Greek had many words for love. And so I want to talk about those things a little bit. Uh, the, the Greek word for family love, this would be the reds, is storge. I'm pronouncing this, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong and spelling it wrong, but that's okay. Storge. Do you want me to write that in Greek, please? No, I don't. Don't show off. You want it on the recording. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It's spelled wrong on the recording. There it is, okay? So, storge. We'll put, maybe do this, all right? That talks about, like, family love. It's really a love from a parent to a child mainly is, is, is storge. But it's the idea of kind of a superior love and an inferior, okay? It's, it's storge love. Blue would be phileo love, which you guys have all heard before as brotherly love, as in the city of Philadelphia, right? Phileo. But it, it, this is more like a peer-to-peer -peer love. It, so it, can, it doesn't just have to be brotherly love. It can also be a friendship love. So if you were, anybody was all blue, it would be like they thought, okay, friendship is the way love works. If it, anyone's all red, they think family is the way love works, okay? Yellows, yellows, <laughs> yellow is the word eros or eros, okay? Now, we all know the word erotic, and so you're thinking, is this sexual? But it's not just sexual, it's romantic love. It can be expressed in our sexuality, but it's romantic love, okay? So it's not just a sexual thing, it's about, it's about romance, right? Now, all these things are legitimate expressions of love, but they're not sufficient expressions of love, especially to know what God is. So here's your first fill-in-the-blank. You guys ready? On page two. So the results of your test that you just took, they tell something about ourselves. Some of us really want to get married. <laughs> uh, some people feel like family is number one. Some people feel like friendship is really just as important maybe as family. But the truth is they tell something about ourselves, but they don't tell us enough about what love truly is. This is the issue. So when we talk about love, we're talking about something that is bigger than we think. It's way bigger than we think. Now it's natural for us to, to think of love from the perspective of how we experience. That's, that, experience it. That's natural. There's, there's, that's not even necessarily wrong. When we get to the third study this week, we'll make that a bit clearer. But it's important for us to recognize that love is bigger than we think. That love doesn't start with us. Love doesn't start with our perspective. Love is an eternal person. Actually, take that back. Love is three eternal persons in one substance that we call God. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. So turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. For those of you who have seen the movie, uh, The Prince of Egypt, uh, at the point when he sees the burning bush, that's when the movie gets more biblical. That's where we're going to pick it up. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. still a great movie. I love that movie, but... Uh, Exodus chapter 3, you guys there already? He didn't race Ramesses around Egypt. He probably didn't race Ramesses around Egypt, yes. It's probably not true. It's disappointing that it's not true, but it's probably not true. We don't know, actually. We actually don't know. Alright, so we're picking it up in chapter 3. Let me read the first three verses to you as you guys follow along. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Herob, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush, uh, of a bush. Sorry. So they, so he looked, and from, from the, uh, so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, "I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why does the why the bush does not burn?" Now, if you want to 
do some homework after this and read the first two chapters of Exodus. It'll probably take about ten minutes. What you'll see is, all we know about Moses so far is that when he was born, he was born under some pretty crazy circumstances. Israel had been uh, in Egypt, uh, kind of at first protected, just 75 people. But then as hundreds of years, centuries passed, eventually they got so big and numerous that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, felt threatened by them. And so trying to kind of marginalize them in culture, began to make them slaves. And then finally, when, when there was a Pharaoh that knew nothing about who Joseph was, who, who kind of opened the door for them, this is how Genesis ends, Joseph opened the door for them to go to Egypt for safety. When, when a Pharaoh finally didn't know anything about who uh, the Hebrews were, they just saw them at this point as kind of marginalized, lower class slave people. And at that point what happens, they decide, okay, these guys are going to take over if we don't watch it. So from now on, kill all the male Hebrew babies. Horrible thing to think about. And so Moses was born, and his parents saw he was a beautiful child. They didn't want to see him die. His parents wouldn't want that. Storge action. And so what they did is they, they made a little ark out of reeds, and they uh, stuck him in it, and they put him in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And so Moses ends up growing up in Pharaoh's household. This is where we get the theme of the movie Prince of Egypt, okay? He grows up in Pharaoh's household, and so we, we get an impression that he grew up knowing he was a Jew, knowing he was a Hebrew, that that was his culture, but also growing up in the culture of Egypt. So some time passes, and we find out in chapter 2 that what happens is he, he begins to see the injustice against the Hebrews, and he starts feeling an affinity for this. And he, he sees a situation where an Egyptian is abusing a Hebrew, and so he kind of looks one way and the, and the other to see if he'll get caught, and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. The next day he comes across two Hebrews and they're fighting. And he thinks he's saying he's going to kind of make it right. Brothers, come on. You shouldn't be fighting. And they say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he's like, ah! They know about this. And so he flees to the desert in Midian. And as he goes to this, this desert, he comes across these, uh, these seven daughters who are uh, taking care of the sheep for their father. They tend to get abused. So he kind of stands up for them. He meets their dad. Dad says, take one of the daughters for your own. He does. He marries her. And we pick up the story in chapter 3. So here he's in a situation where he's, he's kind, of, kind of probably has some sort of identity crisis. I mean, in the sense that he knows that he's Hebrew, but he also knows he was raised Egyptian. He thinks he's doing right by the Hebrews, but then when he tries to do right by them, they don't have anything to do with them. And so he has to just run away. So in other words, we have Moses. Here's your next thing. Moses is, this is under A, I should say, 1 to 3. Moses is running away from his past. Now the main point we're going to make here in these first six verses is that love is bigger than our fears. Love is bigger than our fears. Moses is running away from his past, okay? And then he sees this burning bush, right? Verse 4. It says, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then God said, do not draw near this place, take off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it says that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look on God. Now, it's important that we recognize here that what Moses being afraid is not a bad thing. We should fear when we have, uh, when we have an understanding of that we're before the Creator God. There should be a, a reverence and, a, and a, even a, a holy terror that comes upon us, right? But really, part of what's going on here is that Moses doesn't know who he's afraid of. He's afraid of what he doesn't know. And this is what ha- happens to all of us. All of us are afraid of what we don't know. 
Now, let's not forget the context of the story. Moses is not in a place where he's pursuing God. He's running away from his past. But who's pursuing Moses? God is. God is pursuing Moses, right? Okay, look at verse 7. First point, love's bigger than our fears. Second point, love is bigger than our sufferings. What happens in verse 7? And the Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because they're taskmasters, and I know uh, their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and then bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, sorry, and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, he says, the cry of the children of, of Israel have come to me and I have seen the impression with which the uh, Egyptians oppress them. Now, God is pursuing Moses because God wants Moses. But God is pursuing Moses because God wants his people. He wants his people to come, be able to come back to him. He hears the suffering of his people and he's moved to action. This is important for us to understand because talking about love being bigger than, than we think, because we tend to think of love based on how we've already experienced it, when we don't feel like we're experiencing love, we think maybe it's not really there. Maybe it doesn't actually exist. But this is what we're seeing in this story is that Moses, who, who's having an identity crisis, doesn't know really where he belongs. Moses, who's afraid of this God who's revealing himself. God is wanting to say to you, listen, I want you to know what I'm doing. I'm responding to the suffering of my people. Moses, this is what you tried to do. You saw your people suffer. So you killed what you did in your human, unjust wrath in killing that Egyptian. I'm saying I want to do in the right way. I want to bring about the salvation of my people the right way. I care about them far more than you understand what caring means. What happened to Moses? As soon as he got hard, what did he do? He bailed. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Now, in, nine, in verses 9 and 10, he says to, to Moses clearly, he says, look, I, I, I've heard what's going on. Verse 10, he says, Now come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God says to Moses, I want to use you. God wants to use Moses to deliver his people. That's what he wants to do. Now, this is going to be really important as we get into the next couple studies. The fact that God wants to use Moses. But specifically, it's important that we recognize that this is not because uh, God needed Moses' help. Hey, Mo, can you help me out here, buddy? I can't quite do this on my own. This is not what God's doing. It's not that he needed Moses' help. It's that God's set, setting up a picture that's going to point to the future to Jesus. That God's going to use a man to deliver all of his people. So keep that in mind. Now look at verse 11. We're going to spend the most part of the time in verses uh, uh, 13 to 15. So just follow with me. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so God says to Moses, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, then uh, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's interesting here that God, God says to Moses, Okay, I'm going to give you a sign that you're not going to experience until all the people are actually out of Egypt. So he actually has to step out to do this if he wants to see the sign. 
But more than that, it's important that we recognize here that Moses knew something about himself. God had actually sovereignly used the circumstances of his life to humble him. That, that he, he was in a place where there's identity crisis. He'd grown up in Egypt in the world, you might say. And yet he was supposed to belong to God's people. And so he was having this crisis. And God was using that crisis to show him something about himself. To show him, you don't have what it takes. Because when God calls him, he goes, I don't got what it takes. I can't do this. And so God says really clearly, listen, you, you don't know me. <laughs> it's not about you, Moses. It's about what I'm going to do. It's about me. And so here's what he says. Verse 13. Then Moses says to, to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, they're going to say, What is his name? And what shall I say to him? In other words, he's saying, Okay, I, I, I'm beginning to believe that you're the God of my fathers, but I don't know what that means. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're like. That's the idea of name. When the Bible talks about the name of something, like we do something in the name of the Lord, it doesn't just mean we use Jesus, the name, the word, or name Jesus. It means to do something in the authority of, or also in the character of. So when he says, what's your name? He say, what are you like? What am I supposed to say? I saw a burning bush, and therefore you should trust me? How, how do I know you're the God of our fathers? How, what are you actually like? This is the question he's asking. And this is the question that we need to ask and answer if we're going to understand love. What is God like? What is He like? Can we figure that out? Can, can we, if we just think hard enough or observe clearly enough, can we figure God out? Because if it's this big of a deal that we can't know love unless we know God, how are we going to know God who's so much bigger than we know? The same way Moses did. Moses said, how can I possibly know who you are? And God said, this is how. I have to reveal myself to you. So God says to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. Now, God's not saying, I'm Popeye, the sailor man. I am who I am. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am the self-sufficient one. When God reveals himself as the I am, he's saying, I need nothing, I need no one. We, we sang today, didn't we? We come to you with empty hands, Lord, to the God who needs nothing. There's nothing that God needs. It also means that he's the unchanging. What he didn't say, I was. I ever will be. Though those things are both true, especially from a human perspective. He said, I am. The, the point that you need to understand first and foremost is, is that love is bigger than we can know naturally. Now, storge and phileo and eros are all important, good human experiences that we will see do are redeemable to show something about God's love. But we don't understand God's love until God says, this is my love. This is what love is. Until God defines what love is, we don't know. And until God defines what, what He is, we don't know. We've been trying since the beginning of creation to figure out God. This is why we have a gazillion different religions. This is why some religions have a, a gazillion different gods. Because we're trying to figure God out, which is insane, because how can we figure out a being that's greater than us? We, we, we try to suss each other out and we get it wrong. How are we going to figure God out? Unless God says, this is what I'm like. 
And this is what he's telling to Moses. He's saying, Moses, you need to, I have to reveal myself to you. God must reveal himself to Moses. And so he starts by saying, I'm the God that doesn't change. Now later on, uh, again, this is in your notes, the prophet Malachi uh, said this, uh, or the Lord said this through the prophet Malachi, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So in the context when God's speaking through Malachi, Israel's in a bad place, or Judah's in a really bad place. Israel's probably already gone by then. But Israel, Judah's in a bad place, and God's saying, listen, the only reason you haven't been wiped out yet is because I don't change. In other words, the goodness of who I am is always the same. Interesting, it says about Jesus, a similar thing. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 says that. Now, it's important that we, that we see that, that when God is speaking to Moses here in, in um, Exodus 3, that he wants Moses to understand something about him. He says to him, therefore you shall say, uh, I am has sent me to you, he says in verse 14. Moreover, God says to Moses, verse 15, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord, you can put a square around that word Lord. It's the first time that idea is actually being revealed to Moses. It's this, uh, there's a big word for it, tetra, what is it? The tetra, you should know this, come on. Tetragrammatron or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, it's like a, te- it's a transformer pretty, pretty much, yeah. But it never transforms, that's the point. <laughs> now basically, it's, this, it's, the, it's the covenantal name of God. God reveals himself. And we'll talk about the covenant in more in a minute. But the point is, God's saying, this is, this is my character. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. If you recognize that phrase, Jesus used that phrase with the Sadducees who didn't believe that God was a God of resurrection. And he said, God's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And he quotes this verse. So, so he says, I have sent, say, say that this is who sent uh, me to you. And he says, this is my name forever, notice, and this is my memorial to all generations. There's the unchanging bit as well. So God is always the same. Now having done a little bit of theological study, one of the things that you find out is, there's a lot of theories about the development of theology. And there is truth that we, we, we know, or the, the, the people who were around when different parts of the scripture were written only understood certain aspects of what God was like. That's a fact. Okay? That's true. Um, but it's, and, it, and it's true that as we've been even grown as Christians over the years, our understanding of Scripture has developed. That's also true. But that's not the same thing as saying God has developed. You guys following me? Our understanding of God changes, but God doesn't change. This is really important for us to understand. Now, what's interesting is Jesus makes this, or, or this claim about Jesus is made in Hebrews 13.8, and then Jesus makes a claim in, Rome, in uh, John chapter 8 that's even more bold than that. He's dealing with the religious leaders of his day. They recognize that he's doing and saying things that, that would make him deity. They're offended by this, but they think there's no way a man can also be God. And so he makes it plain to them. He says, look, at, listen. He says, I want to say to you, more surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. I am equating himself to the very God of very gods. Now, this is what we, we this is why verses like this are why we begin to believe in what we call a Trinity. Uh, John chapter one, the Gospel of John. Again, it's in your notes. It says very plainly. You guys probably all know this. In the beginning was the Word. It's a reference to Jesus, and the Word was 
with God and the Word was God. The fact that John starts off his Gospel by communicating Jesus as the Word, he's making the point that God wants to reveal Himself even further than He's done. And His final revelation of Himself is the person of Jesus Christ. And and notice that He says really clearly in John 1, He says, in the beginning was the Word. So, just like Genesis 1-1 starts, in the beginning was God. This starts, in the beginning was the Word. So, before time, space, matter was created. He says, the Word was with God. So, there's a distinction between God and the Word. And yet, the Word was God. So, there's no distinction between God and the Word. So, I know it's kind of hard to get your brain around, but just keep those truths in your mind for a second, okay? He says, He was in the beginning of God. He says very plainly, Though uh, through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made. So what's the conclusion? The Word was not made. The Word is eternal. Now, I want to move on to the the next kind of bit about the fact that God has to reveal Himself to us, okay? So when he uses, in verse 15, when God uses his, this, this word Lord, all caps, it's where we say Jehovah or Yahweh, okay? Uh, the, the Jews wouldn't have even pronounced the, the name. They would have just said Yah. But Yahweh is what's translated Lord here, okay? Because he wouldn't even want to write his name. The fellow was too holy. His character was too holy. But when we see that, we see, see it in the context of God saying to Moses, I'm making a commitment to my people. I'm fulfilling a commitment that I had promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. And I'm going to make a new commitment to you or through you, Moses, a new covenant. Now, it's important that we see this because when we talk about this this idea of love, agape love. Maybe I should write that down so you guys have an idea how to spell it. Oh, stop showing off. Agape love, okay? The, the, the probably closest English word we have to this is commitment. Because the way it's used in the scripture, it's almost always used about describing God's love. Okay, But the idea is sometimes used to describe a heathen who's committed to their sin. And so the idea is not so much like, I'm infatuated, or I'm just gushing. It's not like that. It's not, okay, it's not storge in that it's, the, it's just a fatherly love of like, oh, I just gush over my kids the way we gush over our kids. It's not like that. It's bigger than that. It's not phileo in that we approach God as a peer, though we've been exalted in Christ to have a one-to-one relationship with Him. And it's not like Eros, romantic love. Though we're called the bride of Christ and the Lord loves us, we can over-romanticize God's, agape, what agape actually is. Agape is commitment. Here's the commitment. It's the kind of commitment that you as a husband would keep with your wife when she's been unfaithful to you. That's commitment. I remember when Sarah and I were first married and we talked about such things and she said to me once as we were having, you know, you know, bedroom talk, you know, the private stuff that you and your wife only talk about. And she says to me, I want you to know if you were ever unfaithful, I'd still commit to you. And I said to her, I can't promise the same thing. Because at the time, I couldn't do it. At the time, I thought, that's the biggest betrayal I think I could experience would be uh, my wife being unfaithful to me. Then years later, after the Lord matured me and explained to me what His love is like, I knew more. I don't, on one anniversary, I wrote that in our card, no matter what you do, even if you're unfaithful, I'm committed to you. Now, I'm not exalting romantic love to the same level of agape. I'm saying, this is how romantic love matures. It has to be put under 
this commitment that God shows. This is the third study we're going to get into. But let's talk about God's commitment to us because this is how we're going to understand love, is understanding how God is committed to us, right? In your notes, 1 John 4, 8 says this, God is love, and God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world that we might have eternal life through Him. Now, it's easy to talk about God as love. I have this great quote, and I wrote it in there because I wanted to read it, and I wanted you guys to have this for your own, but also so you could look up that book, The Good God by Michael Reeves, 120 pages, totally worth your time. Great little book, okay? Great little book. Here's what he wrote about this. This is the very beginning of the book. He says, God is love. Those three words could hardly be more bouncy. They seem lively, lovely, and as warming as a crackling fire. But God is Trinity? No, hardly the same effect. It, that just sounds cold and stodgy. And the Trinity can be presented in a fusty and irrelevant, as fusty and irrelevant dogma. And I hope I don't do that today. Okay? But the truth is that God, the truth that God is love is because God is Trinity. This is so important for us to understand, not just theologically, but practically. That the whole reason that we can know this kind of committed love is because it already existed before anything was created. God did not create the universe to experience love. God created the universe because He is love. God did not send the prophets and make covenants with people because He, he wanted love God, or to create love. God did that because He already is love. God didn't send His own Son into the world to die for us because He wanted to love. He did that because He is love. Are you guys following me? This is so important for us to get our head around because if we don't get this around, if we don't understand how big God is in His love, we're never going to learn to walk in love. We're never going to actually experience love the way God wants us to experience love. We're never going to have the longing for heaven that we want. We're never going to endure with one another as we should. Jesus says in John 15, 9, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Notice he says, The Father loved me. Not as the Father loves me. Why does he say it that way? The, the, the reason is, is because he wants us to recognize it's the love that he and the Father have always had. Did the Father start loving the Son at Christmas when there was the Incarnation? Is that when it happened? No, it's been from eternity past. Father, Son, and Spirit always existed they are the objects of their love and they want to share the object of that love with us. He says, Jesus prayed this in John chapter 17, I am in them, speaking of the disciples, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. That unity there is it's not just that we're it's not about sameness, it is about a commitment of love. We're committed to the same things, to the same God who is love. And when that unity happens, when we are committed to each other that way, the world sees something of the love of God, of the God who is love. Now, God's commitment is always accessed through covenant. That's the next fill-in. So under two, number two, it said the God who commits because He is love. And then it says, agape is committed love. That's the, the next bit. Then we read those quotes that I just read, ending with John 17.3. Then the next bit would say, God's committed love is accessed through covenant. Don't worry if you missed the answers. I have them all here. You can get it from me later. 
God's committed love is always accessed through covenant. Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote this. God says this through Jeremiah. This is after they've kind of destroyed the covenant that was made with Moses. They've kind of just been completely disobedient. And so after that, God says, you know what? This is how much I'm committed to you. I'm going to make a new covenant. Look what he says. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The, the covenant, This covenant will not be like the one I've made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the, the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Jesus made it clear that He was the one who is going to establish that covenant. He said really clearly on the night he died, when he, dis- he establishes his, uh, the Lord's table, or communion, he says, this is my, bl- my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Now, it's important for us to recognize that only, and this is the last fill-in, only Jesus can provide for us to share in the love of God. See, this, this covenant that God wants to make, this last, final, everlasting covenant that God wants to make with us is based solely on who Jesus is. The love that God has for us. When we say God is love or we say God loves you, it's not that we are the object of God's love, though we are. It's that we get to experience the love of God that's always been and we can only experience that by Jesus. This is so important for us to get because if we don't get this, we will just try really hard to love and either be really condemned or really puffed up. Thinking, oh, look at how loving I am. And we're not really that loving. Or condemned. Gosh, how can I even be a Christian? I don't love. So, on page one is 1 Corinthians 13. Why don't you guys turn there. And you guys have probably all heard this bit before, but I think this is important to repeat. In 1 Corinthians 13... We're going to look at verse 4 through verse the first part of verse 8. I'm just going to read it. And as I read this, where it says love, I want you to sort of remove the word love, and I want you to insert your own name. You've probably done this before, right? I'll do, I'll do mine for illustration, right? John suffers long and is kind. Don't laugh. John does not envy. John does not parade himself. He's not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked. John thinks no evil. John does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. John bears all things. John believes all things. John hopes all things. John endures all things. John never fails. Yeah, it is laughable, isn't it? And if you put your name, you feel the same way. Now the thing is, what's amazing about the fact that our God is Trinity, and that that God didn't change, but added humanity to Himself. That's what the, that's what the Incarnation is about. That's what that Jesus comes in. That's what we celebrate Christmas. God who is Trinity adds humanity to Himself. That's what Christmas is about. Because He came, we have access to God's love. We can see what love looks like, and we can be guaranteed that we're a part of that love, that we've been brought into that love because of Jesus. In fact, let's read those verses again. This time put Jesus in there. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. You can't envy, you can't sort of be mad that someone has something that belongs to them when all belongs to you. (laughs) Jesus does not parade himself. He's not puffed up. Jesus doesn't behave rudely. Jesus doesn't seek his own. Jesus is not easily provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity. 
but Jesus rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. You're not going to experience storge for what it is until you've received agape for what it is. You're not going to experience phileo for what it is until you've received agape for what it is. You're not going to experience eros for what it is until you, until you receive agape for what it is. Until you recognize that love has always been and has been now made available to you only through Jesus, it's only then that these things will fall into place. Only then. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that uh, love is so much bigger than what we've experienced uh, emotionally. Love is so much bigger than what we've done or failed to do. We thank you that you are God and that you never fail. Lord, help us to, to take the time to think on these things, to meditate on your word that reminds us and assures us of these things. And help us, Lord, to be willing to walk, to trust, to receive the love that you have, the love that you've invited us into through Jesus. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I encourage you guys to, uh, to do a couple things. If you get a chance today, tomorrow morning, to slowly read, maybe read out loud, read to yourself, Romans chapter 8. And just take some time to meditate on that. And then recognize that in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from God's love. It's because we're in Christ that we can know that we're loved. That's the only reason. Okay? We're going to talk about the practical application of this kind of stuff tomorrow and the day after. But let's let today be about asking the Lord to show us afresh how great He loves us. You know, Paul prayed for the Ephesians, right? He prayed that they would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love that passes knowledge. He wants us to know something that we can't know apart from a supernatural revelation. So let's trust that He's given us that in His Word and He wants to illuminate that by His Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Bless you guys.